Over the past weeks, we've been looking at different virtues and vices. And as we continue through these, tonight I'm going to be speaking about lust and how fidelity is greater than lust. Now, if you're new here, if this is your first time in this church, welcome. No, we don't talk about sex every week, but here it's an old date. We want our whole lives to be aligned to Jesus, giving him access into every area of our life. And so we think it is really important to think about such areas, such as our sexual desires that can have such a profound impact on us. Now, the church sometimes has a reputation as being anti-sex. And often throughout history and in various parts of the world even today, that's probably because it is totally misrepresented what the Bible actually tells us about God and sex. As one commentator puts it, the scriptures don't start with a negative command about sex, don't. They start with a positive command, be fruitful and increase in number. One of the first things we read about Adam and Eve is that they were both naked and felt no shame. And notice this is before humans first rebelled against God. That means that we were sexual before we were sinful. Sex is not an evil curse we have to curb and deny. It is a good gift that God created. And he created for us to enjoy as long as it is in the right context. And to take this a little bit further, it's going to get a little bit awkward for you, some of you, but if God created sex as something to be enjoyed, then that means he didn't just create it as the practical function of sex as a means of procreation. He created the pleasure of sex. God created arousal, stimulation, erections, orgasms for his creation to enjoy you didn't expect to be hearing about orgasms in church tonight. (laughs) But that is the truth. It is a good gift that God created for his creation to enjoy. So, where does lust come in? As with many of the other things we looked at in the past weeks, lust from a Christian perspective is a misuse of God's good gift of sex. Right from the start of the Bible, we're presented with sex as something created by God to be enjoyed by two people joined together in lifelong commitment. And while sex in this context is an expression of that giving and sharing by two people joined as one, what lust seeks to do is take all of the benefits with none of the cost. Lust seeks to bring the pleasure without the promise, the enjoyment without the commitment. It's, it's an individual thing. It's about the immediate, here and now. It's about personal, physical satisfaction. What can I get? And it treats anyone else involved as a thing to be consumed or used for personal pleasure, rather than as a unique individual created in the image of God. It makes the other person less than a person. So, to give some practical examples of this, if you're watching porn, or you're hooking up with someone after a party, or you're gawking at someone attractive as they pass you in the street and admiring their body, none of these things are expressions of your commitment to love someone and give your whole self to them. All of these things are using that person that you're watching 
or you're hooking up with or you're staring at to bring you some form of pleasure. That is what lust does. It objectifies and it uses. Pope John Paul II once said, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is use. And that's lust through and through. It is use. Something created by God as an expression of lifelong love and faithfulness to another person turned into something that uses them for your pleasure. And the problem is that lust is like eczema. The more we scratch it, the more it itches. Stimulation does not lessen sexual desire and tension. It might give some temporary relief, but in the long term, it just increases it. Now, this is something that I came to know all too well. So my first taste of this, so to speak, was age seven or eight when I was first exposed to porn. And though I can't remember exactly kind of what I saw or what I understood of it, it was undoubtedly a very young age to witness explicit sex on a screen in front of me. And what started off probably as intrigue grew into an unhealthy relationship and fascination with porn, where on the one hand, I knew it wasn't really right, I knew it was harmful and not something I wanted to be doing, but on the other hand, it was in some way gripping and desirable and felt like it was feeding an appetite, even though that appetite was never filled but only grew. And this lasted well over a decade, through my teenage years and into my 20s. And all this time, deep down, I didn't want to be watching porn. I didn't want to be treating the woman I saw on the screen as objects of my lust. But evidently, my desire not to do that was not as strong as the pull I felt towards it. Or the voice that said, just once more and you'll find what you're looking for. Hebrews 12 verse 1 talks about the sin that so easily entangles. And this is how I felt, tangled up in the sin of lust and unable to break free from its grip. I just wasn't strong enough to say no to its temptations and it had a profound impact on my life. I'll pick up on the story again a little bit later. But first, what does Jesus have to say on the matter? What does Jesus say about lust? Now, Jesus' words in the reading we heard earlier are pretty hard on it. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gout it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Heavy stuff. But in these words are some really helpful principles that um, is just for anyone struggling with lust in their life, they can be really helpful for showing you a way out. So let's just take a quick look. Now, Jesus is being hyperbolic in how he's talking here about removing parts of your body. He's deliberately exaggerating to shock his audience. So while he maybe doesn't quite mean that you should take the instruction to literally remove parts of your body absolutely seriously, the message of what he is saying is abundantly clear. Do whatever it takes to uproot lust from your life. Whatever it takes, whatever means necessary, don't give any room for lust. And this is really helpful. 
If lust is something that you struggle with, then hear Jesus here and do whatever it takes to remove yourself from temptation. This will look different for different people. Maybe it is buying an alarm clock and not having your phone in your bedroom at night. Maybe it's not being home alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's unfollowing certain Instagram accounts or not watching certain TV shows that just cause your mind to wander into an unhelpful place. Do whatever it takes to be faithful to God. Now, all of these practical steps can be really helpful for getting rid of the possibilities for temptation. But Jesus also alludes to the fact that these practical things can only go so far. For when he talks about talking, uh, sorry, when he talks about looking lustfully at a woman, he says, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. As much as outward physical things may cause us to be tempted to sin, ultimately the desire to follow through on those temptations comes from within, comes from the heart. Elsewhere, Jesus says that um, what goes into a person cannot defile them. It is only what comes out of a person that is what defiles them. For out of the heart comes things like lust and the desire to misuse God's gift of sex. And so while practical barriers to your temptation are helpful, what is also needed is the transformation of the heart. We need God, by his Holy Spirit, to come and fill our hearts, transforming us from the inside out. And by continually opening our hearts to him, continually inviting him in, he can mold us, shape us, prune us. It's both and. Now, you might say, hang on a minute. You're, if you're saying that, you know, sex is, if it's not in a marriage context and it counts as lust, you know, I, I really love my boyfriend and girlfriend, or I've never felt like this for anyone else, and, you know, sex for us is, is a thing of love, not lust. Now, if that's you, I hear what you're saying, but I think the Christian understanding of love goes further than this, and here's how. In the middle of the Bible is a book called The Song of Songs. We heard a verse from it earlier. And this book is spoken by a lover and her beloved, celebrating love and romance and sex. Anyone who thinks that God is anti-sex, have a read of this with your kind of English literature poetry goggles on. And you may be surprised at some of the content you can find in the Bible. Yet in this book, there is a refrain that we heard earlier, which appears three times. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, in the Hebrew language, to repeat something is to emphasize it, but to say it three times, the writer really wants you to get it. So this verse here is an important one in this book. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And in this context of this book, the phrase arouse or awaken love, it essentially means to have sex or engage in sexual activity, which it frames as an expression of love. So I guess you could say, do not show your love in a sexual way until it so desires. Now, I think this can be a bit misleading. Certainly when, when I was dating my, my now wife, Kay, and um, when we were engaged, there were many, many times when I thought, oh, believe me, it's 
desires. <laughs> but does that mean that the passage is just saying, wait until you're aroused before you have sex? No, that would be don't awaken lust until it so desires. But in my eagerness, as we'll call it, I was falling into the contemporary misunderstanding of the nature of love in this context. Love is a really overused word in our culture. I don't know if you think this, but for example, I love my wife and I love Biscoff's bread. I mean, it's, it's heaven in a jar. I love my son Otis and I love football. Now, it is clear our feelings for these two things, it's clear they're not the same, or you'd, you'd really hope that they're not the same. <laughs> but, you know, we have the one word in contemporary English, love, and it basically sort of means for us to like a lot or feel strongly about. But the Christian understanding of love is not just about overwhelming feeling, however deep that feeling of care might be. In the Church of England marriage vows, the bride and groom don't actually express the feeling of love or care for each other at all. It's just not in there. Rather, what they express is their commitment to love each other, no matter what life throws at them. They vow to love each other for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death parts them. It's a decision and a commitment to choose and continue to love someone when a sudden bereavement rocks their world. When the pressures of life make them no longer just the, the carefree person they once were. When illness or injury prevents you from being physically intimate or living the life you'd hoped for. True love says, in all of these circumstances and more, I dedicate myself sharing all that I am with you alone. Later in the wedding vows, a couple say, all that I am I give to you, and all that I have I share with you. It's from that place of commitment, trust, and devotion that God says is when we are to awaken love and save sexual intimacy, when we can vow to love someone in a lasting covenantal relationship. Now, in some ways, as we've already seen, love can be seen as the opposite of lust. Love could be its opposing virtue. But as love is quite broad in this context of romance and sexual desire, I want to just zoom in a little bit and focus on fidelity as the antidote to lust. Fidelity. The title of this talk is Fidelity is Greater Than Lust. And that statement is the second part of my story in this area. So while Kay and I were dating, we had the painful conversation where I told her I'd struggled with porn for a long time. And it was just devastating to see how much that hurt her. And she challenged me saying what um, Jesus said in the reading we heard earlier, that looking at another woman with lust meant being unfaithful to her in my heart. And she gave me an ultimatum telling me that if I ever did that again, she'd call an end to the relationship. Now, I knew just how crazy I was for Kay, and I knew deep down that I did want to marry her. And so I just had to tell myself, excuses are no longer an option. If I wanted to marry her, I had to be faithful in body and in mind. And so I 
sought the Lord. I pleaded with him to give me the strength to resist temptation, and I devoted myself to fidelity to Kay and to God. And by his grace, he gave me the strength to walk that out ever since. Not in a crazy supernatural encounter where, you know, I was buzzing on the floor or anything like that, but the knowledge of his spirit alive in me, renewing my mind, and the knowledge that he calls me a new creation. He says that the old is gone and the new has come. You've been raised with Christ. And in terms of the effect this had on me, really it just transformed my outlook because I'd gone through just years of church where every time sin was mentioned, every time there's confession, I just felt convicted about my continued lust. And he then started to highlight other areas of my life he wanted to work on, things that I'd just been blind to because I'd been so focused on this one issue. And this hasn't always been comfortable. I remember one, one day when he literally sort of showed me 10 different kind of sinful attitudes that I displayed, sort of pride, envy, selfish ambition, all these sorts of things. He's highlighted many ways that I'm in need of his grace and the power of his spirit, and I've still got a long way to go. But it is so freeing, and it has been so freeing that he's just opened me into new things that he wants to teach me. And in terms of my relationship with Kay, this choice of total fidelity only served to grow trust between us, to develop an emotional closeness and grow our friendship. And it meant that when we did get married and we said our vows to each other, we'd built a foundation of such security that there was just so much freedom in the vows to forsake all others and love each other as long as we both shall live. And having gone from thinking about my wedding day as being the day when I'd finally be able to get it on, when it came to it, it was the last thing on my mind because so much more significant was the weight and the joy of committing ourselves to love each other for the rest of our lives. Any sense of sexual performance was just an afterthought in comparison. I mean... (laughs) You know what the first thing that Kay and I did when we got to our hotel at the end of our wedding day was? We ordered a pot of tea. (laughs) Yes, we are that British. But the thing was, in the place of sacrificial love and commitment and security, the performance of it all just didn't matter an ounce. Far from the lies that porn had fed me, it didn't need to be a time of knocking down the ripping off clothes. Side note, I heard a story of a groom that literally ripped off his bride's wedding dress thinking it would be sexy, and it did not go down well, so I highly recommend you don't do that. So it didn't need to be that thing, but nor did it need to be this perfectly romantic setting of a room lit by hundreds of candles and rose petals on the bed and champagne and strawberries waiting for us. Those things just didn't matter. We'd gone through the most emotional day of our lives, Amazing, but exhausting. We'd been the center of attention all day for 250 people who were just there to see us. We danced, we ate, we drank, and we were just shattered by the end of it. We just needed a moment to sit back and take it in. So we drank some tea, we chatted about our experiences of the day, and then we prayed together, freshened up a bit, and then the night continued. Now, maybe you think I'm just boring, but I say this to suggest to you that in the place of fidelity and lifelong commitment, 
the need to perform and impress goes out the window because you are locked down into a lifetime of getting to know each other exclusively and there's just so much safety in that. Now finally, you, you may be thinking, this is all well and good, but I'm not in a relationship, lust isn't really a thing for me and you know, that's, relationship's not really on the cards for now and it's going to be ages before I even contemplate getting married. What's this got to do with me? Well, fidelity is not just about faithfulness in marriage or romantic relationships. Fidelity speaks of loyalty, faithfulness, of total devotion to someone and observance of promises. And you know who models this most perfectly? God. I'm deadly serious. God in his fidelity to us, to human beings who are forever wronging him, forever turning their backs on him and going their own way. The primary metaphor used in the Bible for God's relationship with humanity is that of a marriage, of a bridegroom faithfully loving his bride. And such was his love for us and his desire to be in relationship with us, his bride, that he came down in the person of Jesus and took our sins upon himself. He was executed and destroyed death in the process so that we might be in a lifelong relationship covenantally committed with him. He forgives us all of the sins that get in the way so that we may enjoy intimacy with him. That is the extent of his love and faithfulness, that he would come and die on our behalf. And we can have fidelity in our relationship with him, all of us, no matter what our battles. Whatever situation we are in, whether romantically involved or not, when we choose to say no to temptation, we're saying yes to God and fidelity and faithfulness to him. I have many regrets in my life in this whole area. Many times I wish I'd done things differently. But I've never once regretted saying no to temptation and being faithful to God. So, beloved 815 community, I want to exhort you today, choose fidelity, choose faithfulness in your relationships to each other and to God. And in doing so, in saying no in the short term to sexual temptations that seem so appealing now, but ultimately just leave you wanting, you're saying yes to God and the blessing of his good gift of sex. Let's stand and pray. And if the band would like to come up and prepare to lead us in worship to respond. I just want to invite you in this space just to, to close your eyes just to help you focus in on God as we consider how he's prompting us to respond to this. And I think there are, there are three different ways this evening that I feel God might want to be speaking to some of us and working in our hearts. The first thing I think God wants to do tonight is extend his forgiveness. And maybe that some of you, as I've been speaking, have been feeling that conviction, feeling that sense of 
being weighed down by the sin that so easily entangles. And if that's you tonight, the message for you this evening is that God sees you and he forgives you. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for you in your sin. In the midst of that turning away from him, he is there, arms stretched out to receive you, extending forgiveness as he dies for you. The second group of people I think God might want to speak to tonight is those struggling with lust and just needing that strength to battle it. And this is something we cannot do alone. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of God to transform our hearts. And so if that's you, I just want to invite you to open up your heart to him again. Invite him in. Invite him to show you who he really is. To remind you of his love and allow him to do his work of just pruning in your heart. And then finally, I think there are some people here tonight who, maybe this isn't really an issue for you, but as I've spoken about the power of the Holy Spirit, you're just yearning to know more of his presence in your life. And so again, if that is you, I just want to encourage you, seek him, open up your heart, ask to be filled with his spirit. I'm just going to pray for us now, and then the band will lead us. And there's a prayer ministry team waiting over in the foyer to my right, your left. Um, maybe during this next song, if God's prompting you in one of these ways, just quietly make your way out to there, and one of our team will love to pray with you in this area. But let me pray for us now as we head into worship. Lord Jesus, I thank that gift, that sex is a good gift created by you for us to enjoy. Lord, we are aware of just how easily it can become a sin that so easily entangles. And Lord, wherever we are at with this area, we just want to open up our hearts to you now and say, come Holy Spirit. Come, fill me with your love. Would you pour your love into my heart by your Spirit and give me the strength to walk in your ways, God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.